All right. Welcome back to the Windrock Hockey Podcast. We are in partnership with the Black and Gold Hockey Productions. You're here with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing today? Doing great, Andrew. We have our special guest. Actually, he's driving right now. So with technology, this is pretty awesome that we can uh, do our interview while he's traveling on the road. Uh, why don't you give us the intro to this great goalie? Yeah, so today we have with us former pro goalie Cal Heater. Cal competed in high school hockey and afterwards appeared in the NAHL from 2006 to 2008. From there, he decided to commit to his education and suited up for Ohio State University hockey program from 2008 to 2012. After graduating from college, Cal went on to sign with the Philadelphia Flyers organization in 2012 and split his time between most of the AHL and ECHL until 2015. And he also made his NHL debut with the Flyers during that time as well. After a handful of years playing pro hockey in North America, Cal decided to take his talents overseas and suited up for the KHL in the Dell for the next few seasons before returning to North America in 2016. Cal continued to split his time between the AHL and ECHL for the next few seasons before officially retiring from his playing career in 2018. Cal, I know it's probably sounded like it's your elite prospects page, but without further ado, man, we're excited to have you today. Cal, how you doing today, man? Great day for me, fellas. Thanks for an uh, awesome recap of the history of my career. I just got some of those uh, pit stops along the way. I lived out of a suitcase for quite a while. Um, so I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Really uh, thankful you guys having me on. Yeah, Cal, so I've... Cal. Go ahead, Dad. Yeah, Cal, I just want to uh, start out with this. Um, and Andrew, you follow up. So you come from St. Louis. Um, not the, of uh, course, you know, has a NHL hockey team. We're from Tulsa. So sort of the Midwest, not the hockey capital of the world, even though, Andrew, you want to talk a little bit about some of the players coming out of St. Louis. But Cal, how did you get interested in hockey real quick and then being a goalie? Yeah, absolutely. Like you mentioned, not uh, the typical hotbed of uh, hockey prospects coming out of there. Over the years, more and more and more, I'd say, there were some guys right ahead of me, um, a little bit older than I was, that started to pave the way, and then we've just sort of opened it up from there. So um, for me, I mean, I played all those sports when I was a kid, baseball, soccer, basketball, volleyball, hockey. I think that was just the one that stuck. Um, as far as being a goalie, I thought the gear looked really cool. I remember, I mean, I loved Transformers when I was a kid. I felt like a Transformer. I put the gear on. When I stopped playing when I was 30. I still felt like a transformer. I put my gear. I still thought it was cool. I know it's nerdy, nerdy shit to say, but that's that that that's what got me into goalie. And also, um, my father, one of the greatest men I know, told me uh, told me the first year I played uh, played, de- played defense, played a year of house league, and I was like, everyone gets a chance to play goalie. I played goalie once. And I was like, Dad, I want to do it. He goes, Well, I'll buy you the gear, but you're gonna play goalie for the entire season. If I'm buying you this expensive ass equipment, you're gonna play the entire year as a goalie. I don't care if you're crying, if you hate it, whatever. You're playing the entire year. And there were plenty of tears, and I did hate it at times, but I never, never was allowed to quit. And then you know, stuck with me. I played another 25 years of putting on my transformer goalie gear. Wow. Yeah, and so Cal, we we are now starting to see a lot of players come from the Midwest, but specifically the St. Louis area. You know, you have the Kachuk brothers, and you also have. Uh, players, you know, like Trent Frederick and, and things like that. So we're starting to see some players come out from the Midwest. Obviously, being from Tulsa, it's not necessarily the hockey bed, but in St. Louis, it could be a little different. What do you start to see coming out of St. Louis now? Are you surprised to see all the talent coming from there now, living there and, and playing there? Because I know that 
in your NA, NAHL days, you did play, I believe it was what, the St. Louis Bandits, I believe. So yep. talk to us a little bit about the St. Louis rep for hockey now. Yeah, so, I mean, there were always great coaches. You know, I had some fantastic coaches. Um, you know, I, uh, my dad was my coach for a bit, but there were guys, tons of NHL alumni guys who played for the Blues or played elsewhere, married a girl from St. Louis, and they all sort of ended up back here. And I think that plays a big part into – uh, maybe you could say changing the, the culture and of uh, the hockey culture in St. Louis, where there were those guys who had made it pro, had been there, had done that, knew how an organization needs to be run, knew what sort of teaching, learning, skills, skill development that younger players need at young ages to then become successful. And then, you know, obviously always helps, the, like you said, the Kachuk brothers. It also helps you, you know, get a few more eyes from the scouts if your dad's last, your last name's Kachuk, to get, you know, helps, helps them make a couple phone calls to get you looked. So certainly changed. Um, just, I think the quality of coaching and the development stra uh, strategy and style in St. Louis completely changed to what, you know, you could say a Minnesota or a Michigan, they've had this for years. They know that those programs have been developed. They've got it. They're up and running. Um, where I think we've really done a good job turning that, turning those programs into those feeder systems that they need to be to develop these young players to turn them into good hockey players. So we've got the two AAA teams in town, the AAA Blues, um, and then I help coach a team for the AAA Car Shield. And the way these programs are ran, regardless of how much you hate your enemies across town, all right, your across town rivals, you hate them, but these programs are being ran fantastically. These, all these players have so much access to the development they need. If it was someone who had played pro, has the experience, has the knowledge, has the real world experience of playing there, getting there, they know how to help then mold and develop these young players um, to give them the best opportunity possible to advance as well. Yeah, and so not to stick into your youth days for too long, but I, I think it's important to kind of mention the NAHL a little bit more, if you don't mind talking about sure. it, Cal, because we're starting to see a lot of uh, – a lot of players getting drafted from that league and it's kind of our um, American juniors kind of per se, I guess, as if, if listeners are not familiar with the league, but what, what do you say with, with the league churning out the talent as well? And I know that you were there about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more. So what, what's kind of the difference you see now into where it's gone today, especially, or was it the same? Um. Not super, I don't have a super close eye on it, but I mean, I, I know a little bit about it just in passing from talking with other coaches and whatnot. Obviously, some of these kids um, I've coached over the last few years have gone on to play there. Um, and again, it's sort of like I spoke to for the programs uh, in St. Louis, what they did to really make this a great hockey market as far as producing players. They're doing the same thing at the NAHL level. You've got better coaches, but more training, more experience. They, we just know more. There's more data. There's more information you can learn so much more um, to become a better coach, run a better organization that's just making all these players better as well. So I, like you said, uh, it was a great league when I played in it. I had great coaches. Uh, when I played in St. Louis, my coach was actually uh, John Cooper, who's a uh, coach for Tampa now, who's got, you know, almost won three cups in a row. He was he coached when I played for the Bandits. So not saying there weren't good coaches then. Obviously there were. But just the way these programs are ran, everything is so much more professional. Um, than it was previously. I think they do everything they can. They treat the guys great. Not saying we were treated poorly, but I think there's just more access to better product. So you get 
better players playing at a higher level. And then, like you said, the league's, uh, league's expanded. I don't know how many teams are in it now. I think when I played, it was something like maybe 15 or so. I think the league's pretty big. But there's just so many good players out there. they got to have a spot to land. So it's great to see um, NHL getting the credit or getting the credit it deserves. You go on to have four years at Ohio State. So I'm interested, what was the recruiting process like for you and what made you decide to go to uh, Ohio State? Yeah, absolutely. So I played, um, like you had previously mentioned, played a couple of years in the NHL. So I played uh, my senior year of high school. I was down in Wichita Falls. Um, and, you know, it's a completely, it's a completely uh, different quality of hockey. I mean, I played junior B in St. Louis. We had won a national championship. And the next year I go to play junior A. But it's just a, another leap in the, in, your, um, in, the, in the quality of hockey. So I went and played there and then played a gap year. So after I played a year between um, high school and college, uh, that's that second year of juniors I was playing when I was 19, I think I really started to get a lot more um, interest from schools, at least, where they were reaching out to me. I'd had some after my first year, but um, – throughout my second year and I think part of that as well is um you know like give credit to a coach John Cooper obviously he was reaching out he had those connections he could tell coaches to come watch games etc but started to get some um, interest from schools uh as far as the schools specifically um there was some looks from a couple of schools out of the Ivy League I had pretty decent grades and had a good ACT score so I know that was certainly something that's a bit of a requirement to get in there. So I had a few looks from uh, schools out of these. Um, but then Ohio State came, saw, saw it a couple games, um, came and saw me play a few games, met their coaches a couple of different times who were out on recruiting trips, and then had the opportunity to go on a visit as well to visit Ohio State. And I got there and I met you know the rest of the coaching staff, met some of the guys I'd be playing with, and saw the campus and the city and where I'd be living and the rink and all the facilities. It was just blown away. Um, by how incredible it was. And I had such a great time, and they, they treated me so well, and I really loved the school, and I thought the, the program was headed in the right direction. Loved the city. You know, it was far enough away from home, but not too far. It's about a six-hour drive, uh, what I'm doing today, actually, between Columbus and St. Louis. So loved it, and loved the staff. Had an incredible time there. So I'd say just sort of facilities, coaches, and then the, some of the guys I met on my recruiting trip, um, certainly were enough to convince me obviously there was a scholarship financial part of it as well that you know helped me make my decision take that burden off my parents who were both teachers so um really happy with my decision it was incredible we, we, like i said i went back there it was back there this weekend for the uh for the alumni uh the alumni golf fund charity fundraiser whatever we do we call it it's really just a drinking event if you can hear my voice it's about <laughs> But we played nice. some golf there, and we saw all these guys. It's fantastic. It was, there's such a good culture there. I mean, there's guys who are in their 60s who played there, and there's guys who just graduated who are 20 and still playing, you know, or in the NHL right now who are back. It's incredible to get everyone together, and it's fantastic school, fantastic organization. It's just incredible culture. So it was an easy decision for me when Ohio State uh, said they wanted to give me a scholarship, and I couldn't be more happy with the decision I ended up making. So you do go from um... – right from college uh, into signing a, a deal with uh, the Philadelphia organization and you go to Adirondack of the AHL, which had to be a big transition. Before I ask about that, when you're at Ohio State, can you remember any one or two big moments that you really stepped up your game that would kind of say, hey, 
Um, I've made it to a, a, a an elite school, but now I think I can make it as a pro. Was there any moment or two that that you remember? Um, I don't know if I necessarily nailed down like a certain specific moment. Uh, we certainly had some big moments at school. I remember there was one weekend. I think it was my I think it was my senior year where we went into Michigan and we played two games on the road and uh, Yost Ice Arena there. Left them. We took both wins um, on the road. I think that was the first time an Ohio State hockey team had gone in and won both games in like 40 years or something. It'd been like since like the 80s or something. I forget it was. It had been a really long time since Ohio State had gone in there and did that. As far as a the moment I remember, that's certainly one of them. Um, but when it comes to knowing that maybe I'd have a shot at playing professional hockey afterwards, I'd say maybe after my junior year, I didn't play a whole lot my freshman year. I think I played three or four games. My sophomore year, maybe 12. But then my junior and senior year, I played almost every game. But getting those, getting the repetitions, getting out there, performing well. And then obviously, you know, you start to hear interest from scouts that are coming to see your games, and whether it's from the coach or my agent at the time. Um, they give you some information there. You start to learn that there's people coming to see me play. I'm like, oh, well, hell, maybe there's a chance I can go on and play after this. Andrew? Yeah. Yeah. And so, Cal, before we go into your starting your pro career, uh, your junior and senior year, like you mentioned, you started to get a lot more reps and playing games. But I and correct me if I'm wrong, elite prospects isn't always correct with your information. But I believe you had attended the Chicago Blackhawks prospect camp in 2011 and then the Philadelphia Flyers in 2012. Kind of a two part question. I'm curious of like what those prospect camps are really like. You know, we see videos of you know, the fights that can happen, all the scrimmages, it seems like it's more instead of a developmental camp or anything, it seems more of just competition, seeing where everybody's at. But also, too, you know, before we get into your pro career again, you you end up signing with Adirondack, but with the Philadelphia Flyers organization. So did you get a contract out of that 12, 2012 camp? How did all that kind of piece together in the camps? Certainly. So prospect camps, um, you get invited by the team saying, so teams can invite you to camp. And it's, uh, you know, typically in the summer there, it's anywhere from three to five days long. I'm, I know there's a limit on it as far as the TBA and NCAA whatnot. Um, but you get invited to camp. So you go, you go, you fly, they fly you into camp. They put you up in a hotel and it's pretty cool. And like, you'll know, I always knew a few people there, whether it's another guy from your team or a guy you played with or against in juniors. I mean, the hockey world's tiny. It's, there's tons of players, but, Everyone knows each other. I'm sure you're both aware of this. Um, excuse me. But uh, get invited to the camp. And like, like you said, it really is. It's called development camp, and that's exactly what it is. So the guys who are there, there's guys like me. I was undrafted. Um, I wasn't playing major juniors, so I wasn't signed to it. I had signed my entry-level deal and playing juniors. But that's typically who's there is um, guys who are 18 to 22, I'd say, is probably about it. Uh, it's usually the age range, maybe 24, but you got, you know, your younger players who haven't played, maybe, maybe there's some guys who played one year pro, but pretty much everyone's either coming from college or juniors, they invite you in, you know, you do some off-ice training, you do some scrimmages, you do some development work, just practice uh, drills and whatnot, you work with the goalie coach, you know, they'll take you out to, some, you go to a couple of fun events, like I know at Chicago's, I went to a couple of years, they always took us to um, a baseball game, and, they give you, some, you know, they give you some walking around money to, to like per diem to spend. So it's great. They treat you fantastic, and they take care of you. It's really, um, it's really just an opportunity for you to learn. You know, you're growing your network, you're meeting new people, and you're obviously there's 
all great players who are at these camps. Um, so like you said, the competition part of it, there's a really high level of competition and everyone who's there wants to do as, as well as they can because it's an opportunity for you to be in front of an entire NHL organization. It's probably the first time you've had any sort of interaction besides, you know, when you were a kid eating cotton candy in the stands watching the Blues play. You know, that's what that, this is as close as I got to the NHL before I made it there. So that's a fantastic experience. Um, well, one I went to for Flyers was after I'd, I'd already signed my contract with the Flyers and then later on gone that summer to their development camp. So I was under contract with them, just hadn't played my first year pro yet. But uh, it's fantastic. You do some fun stuff. The Flyers took us down it every year we did it with them. They take us down to um, uh, somewhere in New Jersey on the shore. I think it was Stone Harbor, I believe it was called. I could be wrong if anyone has listened to this in Philadelphia and then tell me I'm an idiot, which is true. So uh, it was Stone Harbor. <laughs> but they take us down there and we do a day on the beach where like we, you know, they take teams and you'd have a big volleyball tournament. And then, you know, they set up like a, like a fun, like, you know, after a relay race, like, you know, you had to run a mile on the beach and then one of your teammates had to swim out around a buoy and then someone else had to whatever it was. But it was pretty fun. So they do a great job. Um, two top tier organizations as far as the treatment of their players, you know, in Chicago and Philadelphia, Toronto as well. I mean, three places where I never had a single complaint. They, they didn't hear any from anyone else either. They really did a great job. So, uh, I always enjoyed the development camps. I mean, I think the last one I went to, I was a little bit older. I was like, I, I think I was 24 the last one I went to. And there were some eight-year-old kids there who are like, you know, still in college or going into college or whatever. And I'm like, man, what am I doing here? But but it is fun. They do a great job. And it's always a fun week. So you, are, like you said, you're undrafted, but you do sign your deal um, right on time as far as a career goes. And you sign it with Philadelphia. And, um, and you don't, uh, you know, most, uh, well, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of goalies do start down in the East Coast League. You start in the AHL and, and you stay there quite a bit. What was it like uh, to sign your first pro contract? And then when you're playing as a pro, you're not a college kid anymore. And now you're playing with grown men, families, you're making money. What was that transition like for you? Yeah, it was uh, certainly a huge leap. Like, like you said, you come from a college setting where it is a high level of hockey, but uh, you're on the team, you're on the team for four years, there's that level of security. And then uh, as soon as you sign a professional contract, you realize, hey, like, they still care for you, they still care about you as a person, they care about you as a player, but it's a business and their business is to win games. So as soon as you sign that pro deal, you get there and you like, it's a little bit of an eye opener at first. You're like, okay, this is, a little different feel, you know, you always came hard to work. I always came, or excuse me, always came to work hard, you know, in juniors, in college, so you get to pro and you're like, all right, this is people, this is their living, this is their livelihood. They've got family support, got a mortgage, you got bills. So um, as far as that level of professionalism, it certainly ratcheted up quickly. And then also, um, like you mentioned, starting uh, when going from college to the AHL, I think that year they'd signed the, uh, they signed another goalie who played a few years in Finland in the professional league in Finland, uh, Nico Opening, maybe. I think it was his name. Um, so I think I was I was slotted to start that year. I was supposed to go to the coast right out of, out of training camp, but I had a really good uh, performance in training camp. Played well a couple of exhibition games for the Flyers, and then uh, was sent. They went, went uh, reassigned to the AHL. It was actually 
the lockout year too. That was, that was it. Oh, 2012. Yeah, excuse me, 2012, 2013. So the first half of that year, we had three or four guys on our team. We had uh, Couturier, Ronaldo, the Shen brothers were down with us. Maybe uh, Eric Wellwood. We had four or five guys who had played a few years, you know, one, two, three years in the NHL who were still on a uh, entry level deal that got sent down to um, play with us in the AHL. It was it was incredible. The start of that year, that league was really something. I mean, it was a great league all year long. It was great. Yeah, and so. <clears throat> I believe it was your second year. We always played in it, but fell players on it because of the lockout. They had their young guys. Sorry, my second year? I thought it was my first year. It might have been my second. Sorry. Anyways. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. I loved it. It was great. And like you said, uh, certainly a big leap from college. Um, was able to earn a spot in the AHL coming out of uh, coming out of training camp. And then that year, um, there was a bit of a carousel up top of Philadelphia goalies. I didn't, there was one year. I forget it. Anyways, there's always a bit of a carousel with goalies in Philly, but um, they, we had uh, Brian Boucher got sent down to us in the AHL, and we had Michael Layton was down at one point. So uh, when those guys came down from the NHL, that's when I went and played in, uh, I don't know, I forget what it was, maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe 10 games or something in Trent that first year. And then the second year was in uh, Adirondack the entire year, and then Backed up a handful of games for the Flyers, then got to play the one there at the end of the season against uh, Carolina. Yeah, and so let's talk a little bit about that that time where you were back up for the Philadelphia Flyers and ended up having your very first game. How did that even come about? Was it a goalie got injured and said you were going in or because you're already a kind of a backup goalie for them that uh, you were told you were going to already get a shot? How did all that kind of come together for your first NHL game? Yeah, so I backed up before I played that one. I backed up maybe, I don't know, 10 or so games, something like that. Typically all due to injury. I know one of them was when they were, I forget what the trade was, um, when they traded for Steve Mason, came over from Columbus. I forget exactly what that trade looked like. Anyways, I think they sent Brofsky to Columbus and we got Steve Mason. Looking back, nice, great decision there. Anyways, um, I backed up a few games, and then that was the one I got to play was due to injury. Uh, Mason had gotten a concussion, I think, in Pittsburgh, the second to last game of the year. He got ran into and got a concussion, and so they called me up um, for that Sunday. I actually ended up getting into Philadelphia in the morning at, like, 3 or 4 a.m., and we played in the afternoon. I'm on the way to the rink. They're like, hey, like, you're going to get your first NHL game today. I'm like, oh, great. I got three hours of sleep in a car on the way from – upstate New York to Philadelphia. So that was pretty fun. Um, it was a great experience. I mean, like I said, just the, all the guys, the incredible culture, the leadership on the team, the players, everyone made me feel right at home. So that level of comfort, certainly some nerves playing in your first NHL game, but everyone made me feel right at home. Um, everyone supported me. They all do. I played well in the NHL. I deserved it. I get a shot in the NHL. But uh, like I said, fantastic experience. was actually able to fly in my uh, – my dad and my girlfriend at the time um, were able to fly into town last minute and watch me play my watch me play my first NHL game. So that was really cool as well. So we hear from our guests that uh, 
uh, get called up and get their shot in the NHL that typically it's uh, the protocol is, uh, you know, you get to the rink and, uh, and the captain welcomes you to the team. Now, I would imagine being a goalie is a bit different. You know, you're not a sixth defenseman and you're not a fourth line grinder being called up. You're the goalie. So right, was right. there, was there any um, um, interaction with the uh, captain at the time? Or, I mean, I'm sure they're all, you know, being nice to you, especially since you're the goalie, but I think our uh, listeners do understand that. Like I said, you're not getting uh, uh, 10 minutes of ice time on the fourth line. You're the goalie for that game. So uh, can, yeah. do you remember anything about that, uh, the warm-ups or getting to the rink? No, I, I'd had some – obviously familiar with a lot of the guys on the team haven't been in the organization, you know, since my second year, end of my second year. So I'd been around. I'd known a lot of these guys. Um, had been up and down the backup games, training camp, you know, not close friends, they guys. I wasn't there a lot, but you know, I knew them. They knew me. We, we know we, we've been familiar. We've been to training camp. I had played backed up some games, so um, I can't remember a specific like welcome. I don't think. I mean, everyone, everyone, it was, you know, just seeing your old buddies. So I want to okay. say it was Claude Drew, the captain at the time. Um, you know, everyone's like you said, is super supportive. I'm there. You're gonna you're gonna be starting the game. Everyone's like, hey man, we're we're pumped. Let's go out. Let's have fun. Let's play them. Don't like you know. They try to like try to give you some words of wisdom too. Hey, you know, don't be nervous. Just go out and play. It's just another game. Like we all know you, but you you know you you deserve to be here. We're happy to have you. Like just you know, don't make a big deal out of it. It was really great the way the guys tried to um, just make me feel like you know part of the team. You know, you are part of the team, but you know a regular. So no no one specific moment, but just in general, everyone was fantastic. You know, super supportive, great, good guys. So can't say enough about how easy uh, they made it for me at least mentally to come to the ring and feel like I you know I deserve to be there I was part of that team they did a fantastic job of making me feel part of that team yeah and so Cal after that season um you end up uh playing for Toronto Marlies and the Icemen um between the ECHL AHL only play a handful of games and then you spend the majority of that season in the KHL where you find success as well so I'm curious um your departure to the KHL, you know, I know you'd only played between, I think, five or six games between the E and the A. So you had, you were doing well, your save percentage well over 920. So what, what made the jump over the KHL? And then why did you stay? Because you did stay for another year and then even played in the Dell um, in 2016 as well. So how did all that kind of come to fruition? Yeah. So I had uh, uh, signed that two year deal with Philly, come out of college, played those two years um, and they didn't, uh, qualify me so they didn't extend they didn't extend my contract didn't re-sign me so I actually went to Toronto's camp on a PTO that that next year so I was up in Toronto for about a month at their NHL camp played a couple um exhibition games played well played played, went to AHL camp played a couple exhibition games there played well well there just wasn't uh there wasn't room for me in the system so that they ended up uh thanking me for my time thanks for coming to camp etc and I signed uh I signed that contract with Evansville Iceman just so I was, you know, I needed a job. So I went there and I was playing, I think I played, like you said, maybe played four or five games for them. And then actually got uh, called up for Toronto. The Marlies got called, called me up. I flew into, I think I flew into like San Antonio, maybe backed up one game and played the next, played the next night. We played in Oklahoma City. Uh, played that game against the Oklahoma City team. Uh, but on my way to, when I was traveling to the airport, my agent called me. He's like, hey, 
Um, there's a team over in the KHL, like one of their goalies had there was an injury. They, you know, they want to sign you know, to come over and play the rest of the year. Um, do you want to go? And I mean, I was playing in the East Coast League, and like, yeah, I wanted to get back to a high level of hockey. And I thought it was a good opportunity. I knew the KHL was a great league. Um, you know, certainly the money's there. They're, they're going to be going to be paid well, good good quality of hockey. And I thought it'd be a good place for me to go play to try to then you know continue my career. I didn't want to spend a entire year in the ECHL going up and down and back and forth. I wanted to be on a good team in a good league and play that entire season. So, uh, like you said, I had the opportunity to go over there and went over and joined them. Uh, not quite halfway through their season. I think they were maybe 20 games in to the season, uh, maybe 20 or 30 games into the season. So went and joined that team and then finished that entire year out there, played the rest of um, that season with the KHL team in Croatia. And then um, after that year, they re-signed me to then come back and play the next year. So I was back in the States uh, during the offseason. And then went back and started that year um, in the KHL and played a handful of games before moving over to the German League um, for a number of different reasons. But uh, moved over to the German League and had a great, great experience there as well. Great league, great players, good, uh, great organization. Unfortunately, folded right after that season. So I don't know if it was me or why. They had a little bad luck. I brought it into town, but the team actually uh, folded um, after we didn't make playoffs. So. I enjoyed my time there, but that was that was the end of it. There was no going back because the team didn't exist next year. So you move on to Grand Rapids, and of course, <clears throat> you um, spend time in Toledo, which is where Andrew and I remember you uh, coming in and playing uh, the Tulsa Oilers, which our listeners know that we're uh, uh, season ticket holders too. And you finish uh, with Orlando. I do have. Um, um, a listener uh, asked a question when we said we were going to have you on, and I believe it was from Orlando about uh, an incredible game with 41 saves, and they wanted me to ask, if, if do you remember that game? I'm not even sure if you know what game it is. Um, I, I had to guess. I was, they probably are probably asking about uh, the first round of playoffs um, for Orlando. We beat uh, – South Carolina Stingrays, and we swept. But then we beat them three games in a row. Um, and I, mean, I did play really well in that playoff series and playoff series. And I think that was the first time Orlando, um, the organization, had made it out of the first round. So um, not just a great, you know, experience for me, but for the whole town, the city, the organization as well to get that, you know, first playoff series win. I think I would think that's the one they're talking about. Okay. Um, couple questions that I want to get in here before we start to run out of time. And these are going to be specific goalie questions that uh, I want to ask. We usually ask our goalies, uh, but yep. I think our listeners would want to know. So talk to Perfect. us uh, a little, and this is going to be a weird question. Talk to us about mass design. Do you actually come up with your own design? Do you pay for the design? And um, are there any, I mean, I know there's some specific formulas to a mask, but talk to us a little bit about designing a goalie mask and do you do it every time you go to a different team yes um so a few different parts there obviously the team once you're well playing juniors play college um play pro they're obviously paid for all your equipment they pay for your paint job as well and i know um if you've had your mask painted before you've got a guy you want to send it to if you have an artist you've worked with and you want to send it if you want him to keep doing your mask the teams don't mind at least from my experience um uh, 
don't care who you send it to. There's some parameters. Obviously, you know, it has to be like themed. So you're, you know, you can't have any naked chicks on there. You can't have any swear words. But you can personalize it pretty much as long as you keep it semi-team related. You'll see a lot of guys have like their nickname or a picture of their kid or if they've got – I know some goalies have like a – you know, they're like, they're like hot rods. They've got a car on the back of their helmet or something. Uh, so you get to uh, you get some pretty good leeway on what you can put on it. Obviously, you know, throw a couple team logos on there is important. And team colors is also a must. But they sort of let you go with it. And I worked with um, a handful of different painters who uh, painted my masks. Uh, who were uh, there was a guy uh, I forget his name. It was a French Canadian guy. He was up who painted my mask in college. Did a really fantastic job, and then we went to Philly. Uh, Franny Drummond, uh, he's out of uh, he's out of Philly. He's not too far away. He he paints almost all the Flyers goalies masks, unless you know you have someone to that. So they always send guys to. And so you'll just you know have a phone call or get together if you're in the same city, or shoot some emails, some texts, some pictures back and forth with um, with your painter, and tell them you know what you like, what your ideas are, some. If you have like a certain pattern or a theme, or if you want something specific done, you let him know. If you know, if you just provide any pictures or sketches or whatever, it certainly helps. And then um, they'd always sort of do like a rough draft, either whether it was like pencil and paper, or if it was a computer design or something. That they'd send it back to me, and you know, we a little back and forth. Hey, change this. Hey, move that. And then they'd. Uh, You'd, you'd land on that final final idea. You'd have it, and then they'd do um, they'd do the paint job, and that would be the end of that. Those guys do some really incredible work. I mean, talk about artists. These guys are really talented, really really talented painters that do the that do the goalie mask. So um, I had a couple of themes on mine that I always like to run with. I throw uh, a couple of things on the back plate. Um, one of them was a uh, a logo from the army, a division of the army that my cousin was in. Threw that on there to support him. You know, I'd have a couple other things on there. I always had the Ohio State logo on the back of my helmet, even when I was playing pro, just sort of a, uh, a tribute to, you know, where I came from, where I played previously. I was proud to be an alumni, so I had that on there. But really, you get uh, you get some pretty good uh, creativity from these artists. They do a great job, and the team gives you, you know, pretty good leeway on what you're allowed to do on your helmet. So that's a little bit about the goalie mask for the yeah, and so, you know, not to point out the elephant in the room or anything, Cal, but, you know, goalies are known to be very interesting characters, right? That's the stigma they normally carry. You know, we've seen now with, with the NHL um, filming stuff all the time, you now see Hellebuck doing his thing on the bench with his eye test with the watch and everything. You see yep. um, Mark andre Fleury hugging and thanking the post in between each period. Did you have any weird either superstitions before games or warm-ups that you had to do that may have been a little strange to maybe the normal person? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what you say. Like, like Dick, you said, goalies are all a little strange. And we are all a little strange. I mean, you stand in front of a 100-mile-an-hour slap shots for a living, and we all love it. I mean, it's nuts that we do this. Um, I also like to think that we're the best, you know, the goalies are the right quarterback. We're your most important player. I like to think so. And obviously, I'm biased. But um, as far as any weird rituals went, nothing too crazy for me. Like, the more, the longer I played, the less superstitions and stuff I had. I certainly had a routine as far as when I like to get to the rink and just like the order of the order of things I do once I got there as far as whatever, getting out of my suit and taping my sticks and making sure my skates were sharp, etc. But uh, 
any super weird superstitions or anything. I didn't really have a lot of them. I mean, like I said, I had a routine. I like to play the two-touch soccer before the game, but just because I thought it was fun and you know, get a little get a little sweat worked up, get, get warm, take the ball around the guys. But as far as um, strange superstitions, I didn't talk to my posts. I didn't have like a lucky penny I kept in my jock. I didn't, you know, I was maybe one of like the more normal goalies, still crazy but less crazy than the rest. So um, with that, I've got to ask this, and uh, obviously no names, but what's the craziest superstition where you're like, what the hell are you doing uh, for a goalie that you've seen for a superstition or warm-up? Uh, I mean, I've, I've, played, I've played with some weird guys who, I don't know, they are talking to themselves or if it was just like a, they were, who never really tell. They'd be off in a corner sitting down on the ground like with their head between their legs and then they'd just be over there like almost like they were doing like a little like seance or something like chanting away to themselves and, like whatever hey it's a couple great goalies must have worked maybe i should have tried it too so i'd say that's probably probably the weirdest thing i ever saw so uh goalies uh that we've had on as guests uh, i always ask this question i usually get the same answer besides any goaltending coach all of our uh, goalies we've talked to said that the coaches leave the goalies alone. And, and I'm not sure it just might be, it's such a highly specialized position, or like you said, uh, if the guy's got his head between his legs, talking to himself, maybe the coach doesn't want to say anything, but was that your experience or, or did you have any experiences where the coaches were more hands-on with you? Um. I mean, maybe at a younger age, like that's the thing is you, as you start to progress through like the different levels of hockey, you reach into higher levels of hockey, you have a goalie coach. There's a specific goalie coach on these, on, on, on these teams. I had him in college. I had him in juniors. I had him in college. Obviously had him pro. So they, that's their one job. They are the goalie coach. You've got an assistant coach who might run the power play, runs the forwards and helps the head coach set up our, you know, our strategy for the game. Like they've got so much responsibility to, run the entire team where um, I think they've just got a lot of other things going on. And again, you mentioned goalies are kind of crazy and we're all neurotic and we have superstitions and stuff. So like, yeah, it's usually best to, to leave the goalie alone because we are all nuts and you don't know what it's going to take to push us over the edge. It could be anything. So I think that's part of it is that they're just, you know, Hey, if the goalie's playing well. He's whatever he's got, he's got to do crazy. He wants to cut a chicken head off the locker before a game. He's gonna get a shutout. Hey, let him do it. We don't we do what you need to do. Um, if you got anything like that, and again, I think the other side of it too is these coaches. I mean, I'm not saying they don't know anything about goalies. They certainly do. They're coaching in professional ranks, but they don't know anything about goalies. They never played. It is a super specialized position. It is so much different than any other position on the ice. Um, and I just think that you know, there's not a lot for them to say. They don't. They maybe don't know enough about the intricacies of the position to know, have it to be able to tell you something. Like, yeah, stop the buck. But I think that's about the depth of their knowledge when it comes to um, when it comes to ice hockey. Um, elephant in the room question here, and uh, Diana asked this question. I don't think no. We I, we did ask this once before with uh, Ian Kesserich, who played a lot of East Coast games. Yeah. Uh, Two two part question here. Um, you're 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 the back you're the backup goalie, and uh, you know, lo and behold, the defense is just uh, leaving the goalie uh, out to dry, 
And here comes goal number five, goal number six. And you know that it's no matter if you have Ken Dryden in net, um, you know, th this game is not going well. And you're sitting on the bench. At what point do you actually go, oh, shit, please don't put me in. Please don't put me in. <laughs> Does that yeah, happen? Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. If, you're, if, you see if, it, if your team's having a bad night or the, whoever started having a bad night, and you're sitting on the you're sitting on the on the bench or you're sitting in the tunnel wherever you're at you know like you said that's the backup position. Um, it's not that you don't want to go in, but it doesn't look very fun out there, and you don't want to go in. And so he's very exact. You can usually tell. I mean, around about the second goal, usually the second goal goes in, and like you'll get a feeling like you'll know you know maybe you don't end up going in. Maybe the team turns it around, coach calls timeout, goalie starts playing better, et cetera. But you can usually tell around about the second goal that there's a strong opportunity or there's a strong possibility, excuse me, there's a strong possibility that you're going to be going into the game um, in the near future. So you start to mentally prepare for it. That's part of your job, too, is the backup. You're there to go in if you're needed. So you don't love that part of your job, having to come in cold and you sitting and the team playing poorly or whatever, whatever it may be. Um, but when you're called upon, I mean, you go in and you play as well as you can. There's no pressure usually because the teams get blown out. So it's not like, you're not like, oh, I got to go in and keep this game close um, because it's already out. It's already out of hand. Another part of that too is usually uh, once a team gets to like four or five goal lead, I'm not saying they take their foot off the gas, but they just sort of, you know, put it into cruise control. And then it's usually, it's usually not horrible. You go in there, there's no pressure. The team's already down. And then usually the game's not, it's not too difficult the rest of the game. You just sort of get through it. You're out of there, pack your shit up and go home. So now it's the opposite. Now you're, now you're getting pulled. And uh, I did mention um, Ian. So you seem to at least know, know Ian, at least by name. Um, yep. I asked him the question of, uh, you know, what's it like, you know, the goalies, obviously they're upset and it could be you're upset about, yourself the lack of support the you know moon being in sagittarius whatever the hell um, so, you know you get you know you go to the bench you're pissed because you get pulled and i'm just like i asked him i'm like are you really pissed and he said yeah you know you're you, you're just upset that you know you're not playing well and but he said one time he was pissed that the coach didn't pull him <laughs> did that ever happen yeah. to you where you're just uh, like, are you shitting yeah, me? Yeah. Uh, you know, get me out of here. Come on. No one's certainly. helping. Yeah, certainly. There's been times where um, I've been pulled plenty of times. I was never very great. I, I'm very familiar with being pulled from games. Um, and, yeah, you're pissed. You sucks. You know, either you played well or you weren't getting much support, like you mentioned. Regardless, you've given up four or five, six goals in half a game, and you're just pissed. Um, I was always slightly embarrassed, too. I mean, you're playing in front of like I didn't care. Literally, I like the fans. I'm glad the fans supported us. I didn't care if the, I wasn't embarrassed for the you know if I played poorly for the fans. I was embarrassed that I played poorly for my teammates because like that it's a team and I want to play as good as I can for them. They want to play as good as they can, right? You play for the guy next to you, so you're pissed off. But then I was always slightly embarrassed too because I let my teammates down. That was that was the part I had that felt the worst to me. Was letting them down, you know, making like losing the game. If I was my cost to the team, the game, you felt horrible as you let all your teammates down. Um, the second part, like you asked, was I ever in there and just getting lit up and like I was get me the hell out of here. Absolutely, that's happened too. And it's like, what the hell am I still doing in here? 
actually putting this other goal in. Um, but I've had that, that's, that's few and far between. I've had, I've had it happen before too. And a coach came in between periods and it was like, Hey, we got another game tomorrow. The team's playing horrible, but like, you know, whatever it is, this was when I was with uh, Toledo specifically. I remember this, we were in Alaska and I had given up six, seven goals. I'm playing bad. The team wasn't playing for it. I was playing horrible. I'd given up horrible goals. I was playing. He goes, Hey man, like, I, I want to get you out of there. Like, I, I can tell you're not having a good night, but like Jake's got to play tomorrow. And like, you know, the time changed and everything. He said, you guys want to put him in? And I really respected him for it. That was, uh, what was Watson's first name? Dan, maybe, maybe Dan. I forget Waddy's first name, but Waddy came in the locker room and told me that. I really respected him for it. And I appreciated it. Yeah. And I went out in the third period and gave up four more goals and that sucked, but I understood it. And it was good that, you know, he came and explained it to me. And that part was certainly helpful. Um, for me. And so Cal moving on before we go to our lightning round questions and wrap up here. um, Listeners want to know what is Cal heater doing now that he's not playing pro hockey? Yeah, exactly. Cal didn't retire. Cal stopped playing. Only the greats retire from hockey. Um, (laughs) Hey, that's like, that's the truth. Guys who tell you who played in the East coast, you didn't retire. You just stopped playing because you weren't making decent money anymore. Um, and that's why I was getting ready to turn 30. Um, I wasn't making the money I once, I once was. And now I'm in St. Louis. I retired, or excuse me, just told myself that. I didn't retire. I stopped playing in 2018 and moved back to St. Louis. Um, I'm in sales now. I work for Sunlight Financial, so sell group policy uh, insurance coverage. Awesome, man. Well, listen to the lightning round. So, Cal, lightning round questions. We'll ask fast-paced questions to you. You can either... Um, answer them in a fast manner. It could be a one-word answer, or if you have a story, please, we'd love to hear it. Um, but we'll shoot them yeah. kind of quick at you. It is going to make your brain think a little bit. So if you need to think on a question, that's okay. Um, okay. I'll try not question. to be too long-winded. Yeah, it's all right. So first question, I'll, I'll make it interesting. Um, what was the most, or what was the craziest fan base you had the privilege to play for? It could be pro, college, it doesn't matter. Um... It was wild. Playing overseas was crazy. I mean, our fans, it was like a soccer game. They'd be beating on drums and chanting and screaming and up and yelling and jumping the entire waving flags. It was like literally just like it was seen like a European soccer game with the crazy screaming, yelling, cheering fans. The hockey games were just like that, too. And so you're in that small space. I forget where it was in Germany. There was one place where small rink, um, it was Easer Loan, I forget. Anyways. Uh, but fans were loud, so crazy. They're banging on these drums, and, like, you can hardly hear yourself think out there and just got the worst headache. And then these guys, they also still allowed smoking inside the rinks. So we'd come onto the ice after, like, the intermission, and we'd have to, like, skate around the ice to, like, skate the smoke off of the ice. It was wild. Any strange uh, KHL story? And I know you played in Croatian. We've had on, like, early, uh, like, a, like a David. Playing, uh, who played in the KHL in the early 2000s, and those stories were even crazy. But any any crazy road stories in the KHL? Oh, uh, not not too many PG 13 crazy stories in the <laughs> KHL. Um, I, I yeah, I mean the wildest the wildest thing that went on from there was just the travel. Like you, I knew Russia was big. I had obviously had never been till I played over there, but 12 time zones wild, or t- excuse me, 12 time zones wide. So people think Russia is big. It's huge. There's 12 time zones. So my body thinks it's 3 a.m., but like we're getting onto the ice for warm ups and it's 7 p.m. in 
Novo Kuznets, and I've got no idea where I'm at. We've been on a plane for what felt like five days. Um, it was crazy. I would say that the travel part of it was nuts. So out of everywhere you played, um, even going back to college, what which arena had the worst ice conditions? Oh, Uh, it's hard to say. I can't remember anyone that horrible, horrible. I mean, in Orlando, our ice was pretty shit, but it was 100 degrees outside, so it made sense. Our ice there was pretty bad, and I played there half our game. I played, you know, 42 home games, so that was pretty tough. Which, um, here's a, here's here's the question: What is the most crazy or embarrassing thing to happen to you during a game? And it can't be when that defenseman over in the Dell, you know, deflected a shot uh, into the goal. Yeah, not not that one. You want to, not that story? No, because that's really that's that's not really embarrassing to you, other than it went in. But it's, that's not your fault. Yeah. I mean, there's I, I gave up. There's plenty of times where I let in bad goals. As far as embarrassing, I think there was. I forget where we went, but uh, I had forgotten. If I forget, I forget where we were. I don't remember the story that well, but I had forgotten. I don't know. I didn't have my. I forgot to pack my skates or something. We got to a rink. I ended up playing a game with a pair of rental skates from like the like the rink next door. It was <laughs> no. That was bad. I didn't have my goal. I was like they were player skates, like forward skates, rentals. And I'm out there trying to play goalie in this. Like, I already had a hard enough time moving around. I was, couldn't skate very well in goalie skates. I really couldn't move in these things. It was pretty tough. Needless to say, I think I gave up quite a few goals that evening. Wow. Who was the best defenseman you had the pleasure of defending in front of your net? Who, who just never allowed anybody to screen you, get in your way? Was there any defenseman like that that you're just like, thank you after every shift? Uh, yeah, certainly some great, I think, yeah, played with lots of great players. Um, the one who stands out the most to me that could really take over a game, not just in the D zone, but the O zone, was I played with him in college, actually just with him this weekend, uh, Matt Barkowski. I'd say he's probably my favorite defenseman I ever played with. Okay, and who had the hardest slap shot that you can remember? Anybody. Uh, I remember taking a one-timer from Kovalchuk in the KHL. He was playing for SKA when I was with uh, the Croatian team. He took a one-timer on the power play that hit me like in the chest. I, I couldn't believe. I, I almost I, like, I had to take a second. Thankfully, like, I controlled the rebound because I needed a minute to like make sure like my heart hadn't exploded. It was wild. Wow. And so, and so, Cal, I know we're running out of time here. So just the last question. I know it's a bit broad, but uh, just going back to what is your best hockey memory from your pro career specifically? Um, yeah, I mean, I was playing my first NHL game. I mean, that, that, my whole life I wanted to make it there, and I finally got to play. I ended up playing the one game. But make, playing my first NHL game, I'd say, is my most memorable moment. Um, for a number of reasons. I didn't play particularly well, but if I finally made it, I got to play. So I'd say that was uh, definitely the most memorable moment from my career. 
Well, Cal, we can't thank you enough. And uh, again, we enjoyed watching you play uh, when you would uh, come here uh, in Tulsa from uh, Toledo. And we were excited. We've been looking forward to having you on and you didn't disappoint. We want to officially thank you for coming on. No, I really appreciate it, guys. Uh, happy to uh, happy to take the time. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. all the fans who are going to listen as well. Love you guys. Miss you guys. Hope everything's going well. Okay, Andrew, I love when we have a goalie. They just bring a, a, a different perspective to the game as, you know, like you talked about, because it's a specialized position. Um, very tough to make teams because, like you say, you can only have so many goalies in the system where you can have, you know, a lot of forwards and defensemen. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I wish I could hear those KHL stories, man. It doesn't matter if it was early 2000s, later in the 2000s. It always sounds like it's a crazy place to play over there, crazy league. But uh, it's always interesting to hear about how crazy the fans are, too, in other places, whether a dad, it's the EIHL that we talk about a lot with our recent guests, or the, even the KHL and the Dell. Um, just very cool, the, the crowd reaction to hockey over there. You just wouldn't think that with uh, being here in North America, you get so blinded with uh, Canada and even American hockey now. Yeah. And, you know, we ran out of time um, and I did want to ask him, he, he did uh, win a bronze medal in the uh, international um, league for uh, Team USA, I believe. I, I, I think he was more of played a backup role in that whole series, but I did want to do uh, ask him about that experience on the international level. But since he basically played pro um, all over the world, uh, you know, I figured, we just didn't have time for that, but uh, I would like to have heard some stories about that. Yeah. And I know that, you know, dad, for basically all of our guests, we have a pretty similar formula of how we do things, but you know, part of our podcast and the reason why we have these uh, different players, coaches, scouts, whatever they may be, come on the shows to hear their journey and their story and their love for hockey and how they came about to make it their living. And it's always very interesting, whether, like I said, it's a player or a scout, you know, uh, every place that they've been to, the different experiences, and really it's just promoting hockey in general, which I think is always our goal, too. And I just, it's very cool to hear all these different stories, man. It is. So we're going to wrap it up here, Andrew, and uh, we've got uh, more guests coming on. And I, we got so many booked right now, I, I don't even remember who's next, but stay tuned. Uh, I know we've got an ex-former uh, Bruin uh, coming on soon. And uh, uh, well, a whole bunch that, of guests. And that episode will already actually be released when this will be. So, um, you know, this, this one is recorded technically at the very end of July, but probably won't see, see the uh, public until probably mid-August sometime. As we'll probably keep it to one, one a week. So as people are listening to this now, um, we hope that everybody, you know, continues to take care of themselves. Stay healthy, too. COVID's crazy right now. Um, so we hope that everybody kind of stays safe. And hockey's coming, too, Dad. I mean, it's, it's sneaking up again. It is, it is. And once I get back, uh, people know that I, I teach at university. And once I'm uh, back in school, we'll be back in our studio, which is uh, at uh, basically in my office at work. And so audio will be a little bit better. I know that there was a little spotty things with with Cal, but he was basically uh, uh, driving um, and he was good enough to jump on. So wherever he was driving, I, I know that audio might have cut out a little bit here and there, but that's just the way it is. And I'm glad we at least have technology that we can actually interview and interact with these uh, former players. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, we're, we're very blessed and thankful to be able to continue doing this, especially with my dad personally. So again, I know that this will be released later in time as we're talking in present time on July 31st, but we want to thank everybody for continuing to tune in. We hope that you enjoyed or enjoy the next episodes that are released before this one and uh, keep an eye out. We're going to be hitting uh, should hit episode 100 dad before the end of the year that's the big push and uh, I think we'll do something special I don't know if, if we'll be able to like nab a special guest you know anything crazy like that per se other than you know whichever guests we have lined up but uh, it'll be exciting for our podcast we're hitting coming up on two years now dad two years yeah October it'll be two years uh, good stuff all right we thank everybody we'll catch you next time We'll see everybody then.